Well, hello, everyone. You are a bunch of rebels. That's what you are. And I appreciate all the great feedback that we're getting in this series as we're talking about how to rebel against the status quo. And many of you have said over email or cards or just personal words, hey, I'm all in. I'm with you on this rebellion. I, I look around at the world the way it is, and I'm just not willing to be okay with that, the mess we're in. And I wanna see God's kingdom and God's will come on this earth as it is in heaven. And uh, I love to be linked up with people like that. If that is your resolve, then we're on the same page and we can uh, excitedly do this journey together. But today I want us to ask this question, but how? How do we do that? Because good intentions are not enough. It's not enough just to have good aspirations to pray. How do we actually do it? If you do very much reading on the subject of prayer, you'll, you'll pretty quickly run into the name of Andrew Murray. He was a South African minister, uh, wrote a ton of books. And in his book called With Christ in the School of Prayer, Murray said, reading a book about prayer, listening to lectures and talking about it is very good, but it won't teach me to pray. You get nothing without exercise, without practice. I might listen for a year, he says, to a professor of music playing the most beautiful music, but that won't teach me to play an instrument. And I, I think Murray is absolutely right about that. We need a model that we can follow, and of course, there's no better model than Jesus. The Lord's Prayer is the ultimate model prayer for rebellion. This prayer that we're going to look at today is the heart cry of anyone who's fed up with the status quo and wants to see God's kingdom come in its fullness. Now, many of you grew up praying this prayer, maybe in your religious background when you went to church. And that's fine. I doubt if Jesus intended us to pray this prayer by rote, but when we pray this prayer with understanding as a model, realizing all that's behind it, realizing how radical it is, I do believe it becomes a powerful model for how we can pray. So let's, let's dive in today. Let's just jump in, and I want to break it into two major parts. The first part, I want you to see that this prayer starts by putting all the focus on God. And I, and I want to point out three things about that focus on God. First of all, rebellious prayer is bathed, it's bathed in the character of God. Now, here's what I want to propose to you up front. I think we need a Copernican revolution in our prayers. What in the world do I mean by that? Well, if you've studied the history of astronomy, you know that centuries and centuries ago, the old Ptolemaic view of the universe or of our solar system was that the sun revolved around the earth, and that's what was believed for many centuries. But 
Copernicus came along, and through his calculations and observations, he concluded that it is a heliocentric solar system. In other words, that the earth and the other planetary bodies revolve around the sun. Copernicus was the first to really say that. Galileo came along some decades later, and by using his telescope, guess what? He came to the same conclusion of a heliocentric view of the solar system. So here's what I'm saying. I think we need a similar revolution in our prayer life. Because here's what I believe. I believe today, probably the most popular view of prayer is anthropocentric. Don't let the big word throw you. Anthropos is just the Greek word for man or humanity. And I think most of our prayers are pretty human-centered. They're me-centered. I'm the fixed point, and God revolves around me. He revolves around us in order to fulfill our needs and our desires. Now, if that's what you believe, God becomes sort of a cosmic bellhop, and prayer is pretty much us giving the cosmic bellhop our grocery list of things, all the things we want God to do for us. But it really is all about us. It revolves around us. What I'm suggesting is that the greatest thing, and I really mean the greatest thing, if nothing else happened through this series, if we could just have a Copernican revolution, if we could just understand that we're not the center of what prayer is all about, it really should be theocentric. It should be God-centered. We revolve around him. And our prayers should be all bathed in his character, all about his kingdom and his will. That would be revolutionary for many of us. It would, it would transform us from simply trying to get things from God to actually getting in on God's exciting agenda in this world. Okay, so just throw that out there. If nothing else could happen, that alone would be worth it all and worth all of our focus during this month of January. Now, Jesus begins the prayer like this. Our Father in heaven, this is verse nine, hallowed be your name. When I say it's bathed in the character of God, our prayer should be bathed in an understanding of who God is and love for God for who he is, not just for what he does for us. All of you who are married out there, why do you love your spouse? If you love your husband or wife only for the things they do for you, question, what happens when they can no longer do some of those things for you? Does your love cease? I sure hope not. Well, we all appreciate being loved for the things we do. The greatest love is when we love someone for who they are. That's how we really want to be loved. And prayer that's bathed in the character of God recognizes that principle. So, all the focus is on God here. God's the center. We revolve around him but secondly, rebellious prayer is motivated by the kingdom of God. 
Jesus goes on here in the model prayer in verse 10, and he says, your kingdom come. Wow, that's a radical statement. You talk about a rebel prayer. That's a rebel prayer if I've ever heard one. Your kingdom come. If you're a Bible geek, these are little facts that may excite you. They do me. 54 times in the Gospel of Matthew alone, Jesus uses that word kingdom, kingdom. I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of kingdom. Maybe if you've watched a lot of movies over the last few decades, you think of a castle. You think of an ancient medieval fortress with, with a moat all around it and a drawbridge that goes up and down. And maybe you think about fiery dragons. That's what comes in your mind. Well, the kingdom of God is not really like that. Jesus said in Luke 17 that the kingdom of God is in you. He said, don't look around and go, there's the kingdom or here's the kingdom. He said, it is within you. So what does that mean for this prayer? When we pray, your kingdom come, what are we really saying? The first thing we're saying is that my kingdom needs to go. My agenda, my values, any selfish things that are going on in here, that needs to go out the door, and I'm asking for God's values, God's agenda to be paramount here. That's what we often call living under the lordship of Christ. So that means that the kingdom of God can be present right now among us. Hey, let me ask you a question. Is the kingdom of God present in your house, in your family? Is it? It can be right now. Whenever a person yields herself to God's values, God's agenda, and begins to live according to his desires and his will, where that is the number one thing thereafter, you can honestly say the kingdom of God has come there in that life, in that family, in that business, in that neighborhood. If you've got a whole bunch of families living that way, that is accurate to say. They're living under the lordship of Christ. But there's also a future aspect to the kingdom. One day, Scripture teaches that while the kingdom of God is present now, wherever people are living under the rule and reign of Christ and under his kingship, there is going to be a day when Jesus will establish his kingdom in a more visible way. And oh, how I yearn for that day. I hope you do too. It will happen when he returns in glory and we can talk about exactly what that will mean, where that will happen and all. There's all kinds of discussion about that. But one thing all biblically oriented Christians agree on is that there is a future aspect to the kingdom when Jesus returns. So it's now, it's in us, it's wherever his reign is very real and embraced and we're living under that, but it's also future. So this prayer is bathed in the character of God. It's motivated by the kingdom of God, but it gets even, are, are you ready? I'm not sure you can handle this. 
This gets even more wild-eyed and crazy. It is centered on the will of God. Rebellious prayer is not about getting just what I want. It is about the will and the desires of God. He goes on here. I'm reading from verse 9. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I, I hope you get how radical this is. This is cutting edge stuff. When you pray that prayer with sincerity, you are a wild-eyed, fiery-hearted rebel. That's what you are when you pray this. Now, let, let me ask you a very personal question right now. Sorry for meddling like this, but I just got to. I just got to ask this. You may think I'm baiting you, but I'm not. This is not a trick question. I'm not asking you to blurt out your answer, but I do want you to think about this. How determined are you to get exactly what you want and to have your will done in your life? How set are you on that? How determined are you to get your own way? Or a, a second question would be, how confident are you that you even know what's best for you? I'm curious how you would answer that. Now, I ask these questions because some strange thinking has crept into Christian circles that somehow our will our desires are paramount. That's what I mean by that anthropocentric praying rather than theocentric. Prayer is mostly revolving around us. And the most popular Christian thinking today, just being real, is that God exists to do our will. That's the popular thinking. And we can actually, this is very popular teaching out there. We can actually co-opt and command God to do our will on just about anything. Let, let me use an illustration. For instance, you'll hear this issue coming up in an awkward way, often when people are praying for healing. Some years ago, when Grace was much smaller and just about everyone knew just about everyone else, we would often in those days, since there weren't that many of us, we kind of knew everybody and shared on a much deeper level of, of information about people. And there was a volunteer leader, an amazing woman that everybody just loved, but she was battling with cancer. And I'll never forget that Sunday morning when I mentioned her name and I'd gotten her permission to do this, and we just had prayer publicly for her that morning. Okay, And as I recall, I voiced a prayer for her healing, and I mentioned God's will in it, and I said something like this, Lord, if it's your will, would you please heal her and bring her to complete wholeness, and may you get the glory for having done so. And boy, I, it might have been my imagination, but I think everybody was on the same page. I I just sensed the groaning and the yearning in the congregation because we wanted her to be healed. It was a wonderful moment of prayer together. But after the service, they were standing at the back, shaking hands, and a man who was a guest, I'd never met him before or that I'm aware after, he came by, shook my hand, and he said, 
You do know you don't have to put up with cancer, don't you? I can teach you how to get a healing every time. Because God would certainly never want anyone to have that kind of battle in their life so you can just command it to be healed in Jesus' name. And here's the phrase that really, really popped out, and God has to do it. And God has to do it. That's what the man said. Well, I don't have time to share with you kind of where the conversation went, but we just kind of came aside there and talked for several minutes in a very cordial way. It was very cordial and friendly, but we kind of talked about what the sovereignty of God means and what, you know, what prayer should be around and so on. But let me ask you, is what that man said true? I mean, Come on, can, can we put a gun, can we put a gun to God's head and just command God to do things as that man said, and he has to do them? Now, Jesus taught us to pray for God's will to be done. Is that a bad prayer? Was Jesus wrong in teaching that? Now, trust me, this topic deserves a lot more time than we can give it this morning. But when you're praying, I urge you now to be very careful on insisting on your own will to be done. God's ways are not my ways. God's thoughts are higher than mine. And he knows things I don't know. I know that may shock you, but I, I just feel I need to share that with you. God knows things I don't know. And whenever I begin to think in any situation that I've got it completely figured out, I know what's absolutely best and my will better be done on this, I know for one thing that I'm being very naive and presumptuous in that moment. Because there's a mystery about God's will. God always has an agenda going that I'm not fully in on and aware of. And that's okay with me. Because he's God, and I'm not. Now, let me give you a quick example. This is just an illustration of what I'm talking about from the Old Testament. If you have your Bible, you may want to find 2 Kings chapter 20. I just want to give a quick illustration of what I'm talking about, and then we'll move on. But this is a story about Hezekiah. He was one of the Few, there were only eight good kings in the nation of Judah, and Hezekiah was perhaps the best of them all. I'm reading from 2 Kings chapter 20, starting in verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says Put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover. Oh, I would hate to be Isaiah the prophet delivering that bummer of a message, wouldn't you? Put your house in order, dude. This is curtains for you. You are not gonna recover. But notice the next verse reads, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Now remember, he was one of the best kings, perhaps arguably the best who ever ruled in Judah. Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion 
and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now, moment of, I would pray that same prayer, wouldn't you? I mean, I might not be able to go, I've walked before you faithfully and all, but I would at least say, God, I wanna see my grandkids go, grow up, right? God, there's so many things I wanna do. I don't want this to be the end. Would you please give me more time? I can see myself praying that very prayer. But look at what happens. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears, I will heal you. And then it says in verse six, I will add 15 years to your life. Hezekiah has gotta be ecstatic. He's gotta be rejoicing at this moment that God is not only a prayer answering God, but Hezekiah got exactly what he asked for. His will was done. But when you read on down to the end of that very chapter, it says in the last verse, verse 21, Hezekiah rested with his fathers. Now, that's a common phrase used when a person dies. They rested with their fathers. This is after now the 15 additional years, the bonus years God gave him. It's after they've been lived out. He rested with his father, fathers, and Manasseh, his son, succeeded him as king. He said, well, cool, everything's good, right? Well, but as you read the story of Manasseh, all the good his father had done, he pretty much undid and more. Hezekiah was probably the best king to ever reign in Judah. Manasseh was the most wicked. He brought back the pagan idols that his father had abolished from the land. Manasseh, I mean, it's hard to conclude that the guy wasn't just demon-possessed. He took two of his own precious sons, Manasseh, he held them over the altar, slit their throats as their blood poured out as an offering to a pagan god. Under Manasseh's leadership, the trajectory of the nation plummeted. He was a disaster of a king. He was personally twisted. He was morally corrupt. He was sadistic and cruel beyond measure. And if you read the very next verse, here's where the lights begin to come on. Chapter 21, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began, became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. 12 years old, hmm. If you do the math, suddenly you go, oh no. This demon-possessed leader, the epitome of monstrous corruption, was born three years into his dad's additional 15. Bottom line, it would have been better if he'd never been born. Wow, it would have been much better for the nation if Hezekiah had not been given an additional 15 years during which he fathered Manasseh. Hezekiah got his way all right, but the nation suffered horribly. You say, well, don't you know, pastor, that Manasseh eventually came to the Lord? Yes, he did, right at the end of his life. 
but it was too late to undo all the decades of destructive leadership that he had set in motion. Now, I just use that as an illustration. I hope you're getting the gist of this. We can obnoxiously insist on our own way, and God may grant it, but you may get a Manasseh in the process. You may get a Manasseh in the process. There could be a huge downside to getting your own will granted. It's just a lot wiser to have as your default mode and attitude, Lord, your will be done in my life. I want to discern it as best I can, but I want your will, not mine, to be done. That's what Jesus prayed in the garden. And folks, I doubt if you're ever going to do better than that. Don't be afraid to pray for God's will. He's a good father, and he knows a whole lot better than we. Well, that's the first part of the prayer, but very quickly, I want us to shift gears for these last few minutes together, and I want us to focus on the second part of the prayer, because the second part is focused on humanity. Humanity. And what you realize is that as you live as a rebel in his kingdom, Focusing on his will to be done, there are some very real needs that are going to arise. I want to just mention the three basic categories that I see mentioned in the model prayer. Number one, we need food for the present. He says there in verse 11, give us today our daily bread. Now, some of you may wonder, well, pastor, isn't that an archaic prayer? Isn't that kind of obsolete in a culture? I mean, my pantries are bulging. My freezer is full. Maybe a better prayer for me would be, God, help me to not overeat today, right? Wouldn't that be a more appropriate prayer? I think that Jesus' focus here has nothing to do with whether your pantry is bulging with food or, or whether you've got uh, nothing to eat. I think his focus is he wants us to have an attitude of dependency on the Father, it has nothing to do with your status right now. We should realize that no matter how much we have, we never get to a place in life where we don't need God. Let me just share a fun little proverb that I think kind of illustrates this. Have you ever read Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9? It's a really cool little proverb. It's kind of known by the phrase, give me neither poverty nor riches. So let's look at it quickly here. Agur, A-G-U-R, is the divinely inspired author of this particular proverb. He says, two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me, here's the phrase now, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I ha may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Is that saying that God wants everybody to kind of live a hand-to-mouth existence? No, no, no. That's not what this proverb is teaching. In fact, I'll go on record as saying, I think God is looking for people that can handle prosperity. I've said that for years now, and I really believe it. The problem is that when we get a bunch of stuff, it usually turns our heart away from God. 
Say, Pastor Rex, I'm offended by that. Don't be offended if you're the outlier. Thank God. Just thank God that abundance and prosperity didn't turn your heart away from God. That's all I would say. If you're one of the rare ones, but it's just human nature that things tend to make us not depend on God anymore. On the other hand, Agur is saying here, when you don't have enough, when you're so pressed to the edge with resources, you may be tempted to turn to criminal activity. It's just real. And human experience bears all of this out. God is looking for us to have an attitude of dependence on him. Give me today my daily bread. And for those of you who are multimillionaires, I hope you're praying that prayer. You say, well, I, I can do the finest steakhouse in the capital district every day, pastor. Beautiful. But pray that prayer. Give me today my daily bread. And really understand the heart of that is that God wants us to live with a constant reliance on him for strengthening, for encouragement, and for sustenance. I think that's what Jesus is teaching us to pray. He's the source of every good thing we have, and we're dependent on him. So we need food for the present. Second, we need forgiveness for the past. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now listen, Jesus taught if you live in this world, some people are going to do you wrong. That ever happened to you? A family member took you to the cleaners with that family inheritance. Whew. A neighbor abused you as a child. A former spouse wrecked you emotionally and you're still dealing with a tsunami of that devastation. A coworker stabbed you in the back. A boss didn't treat you fairly. A church leader treated you unkindly and never made amends. Trust me when I say, we all have debtors. I have debtors. You have debtors. All God's children have debtors. There's some people who owe you something, don't they? Somebody owes you the best years of your life. Somebody owes you a childhood. Somebody owes you a career. Somebody owes you a reputation that they trashed and wrecked. Somebody owes you an apology. Here's my question. What are you gonna do with that debt? Here's what I hope you don't do. I hope you don't spend the rest of your life as a debt collector No, making yourself and everybody else miserable. God has freely given grace to you even when you didn't deserve it. He calls you and me to freely give grace to others. We need forgiveness, but we also need to be forgiving. And I don't understand it, folks, but Jesus taught that somehow those two are very intricately linked I wish we understood that better. But the measure we give, Jesus taught, is the measure you're gonna get. I don't understand that, but boy, it sobers me. So we need bread for the present. We need forgiveness for the past. 
But here's the final one. We need victory for the future. This is verse 13 now. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Can I just put it to you really plainly? When you live as a rebel with God's kingdom in mind, looking for his will to be done, and your attitude is, Lord, my kingdom go, your kingdom come, guess what? You're gonna be an object for attack. I'll guarantee it. Because you've suddenly become one of the rare people that is dangerous to the devil and his kingdom. You've suddenly become one of those rebels who's actually rebelling against the status quo. And there is a kingdom of evil, although it's mocked, although it's ridiculed, the whole idea, I get it, I get it. How do you believe in that in the 21st century? How do you believe in that in a day of scientific advance? There is a world unseen that is just as real as anything you've ever seen with your physical eyes. And you will be an object of attack. Now, I wanna be clear on one thing. The Bible clearly teaches that God does not tempt anyone. James chapter one, verse 13 says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. According to scripture, there are three sources of our temptation, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they often collude and conspire together to take us down. Many of you are into conspiracy theories, okay? You're really into that? Here's a conspiracy I wish you would believe in, that the world, the flesh, and the devil are conspiring together to take down the person who's rebelling against the status quo. So what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean when Jesus said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from I think it means keep us, Lord, from those unnecessary and self-imposed, what you might call foolish, foolish parlays into temptation. Or to put it more positively, keep us following you so closely with such vigilance, with such reliance on your strength, trusting in your supernatural power that you will lead us to victory. So here's the deal. I, I think Andrew Murray was right. Talking about prayer is not enough. I can listen to the greatest musicians in the world for years and never be able to play an instrument myself. So here's my challenge this week. Let's use this prayer as our model. You won't get more radical than this prayer. Many of you grew up thinking this is just a tame little prayer. It's just a churchy stained glass prayer. Folks, nothing could be further from the truth. This is wild-eyed, radical rebellion because nothing's more rebellious than saying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's be that kind of people. Father, I thank you that you've called us to live a countercultural life, wild-eyed rebels, not willing to be okay with the status quo. You've called us to be your hands and feet, to be your mouthpiece, to be your people in this world, citizens of another country. And yet, 
stationed here on assignment as your ambassadors. Oh, let us understand how significant that is. We're here on assignment, divine assignment from you, and may we be so strategic in the way we pray for your kingdom to come, for your values to be lived out, for your kingdom principles to be seen in the lives of your people. This is our prayer, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.